Hey there, my name is Janny and I'm the host of What's On Your Mind. I interview guests about their weekly musings and Wikipedia rabbit holes, like toxic beauty standards, or the impact of redlining, or bees. Whatever it is, we'll process it together. We'll all learn a little something and take another step in creating our own stories, all while adding another laugh line to your face. What's On Your Mind brings you the newest mini-sode series, STFS, stories of survival, struggle, and everything in between. JRPW Services and Be Fearless You Foundation are co-hosting this mini-sode series of What's On Your Mind to bring you a platform where we can all end the stigma around mental health and mental illness together. In fact, Corey Lynn Bailey herself is one of the hosts of this series. You can hear her story a few episodes back. It's episode one of STFS of What's On Your Mind. Conversation is powerful, and together through language and stories, we can stop the effing stigma. As a disclaimer, the stories shared on this platform may include triggering content. Please take care of yourself while listening. We will not be providing advice, therapy, or counseling. That is not the intended purpose of this space. If you are seeking professional advice or need to talk to someone immediately, please connect with a mental health professional or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 1-800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-8255. Do you have a story that you would like to share on STFS? We'd love to hear from you. Email stfswoym at gmail.com and we'll get back to you. In this episode, Jay Schiffman shares his story. I really don't want to do him any injustice by trying to share a bio. I don't want that to diminish from the amazing story that you're about to hear. But what I will say is that Jay is an inspiring and passionate person, and he seriously uses his podcast, all of his platforms, his social media, everything for such good. And I truly hope that you enjoy this story. You'll notice that this is a longer episode. I usually time these for about 20 to 30 minutes, but I talked to Jay for over an hour and I decided to to keep the majority of the content and I cut it down to about 45 minutes. So please listen to the whole thing. Jay, I can't wait to work more with you in the future. This episode contains content around substance use, substance misuse, overdose, addiction, recovery, and suicide. Hi, Jay Schiffman. What's on your mind? Hi. Uh, it is wonderful to be talking to you. Um, you know, so I'm recording this after my wife and I just moved to Philadelphia. I'm literally on day three. Uh, and in the last 48 hours, I've also gotten my first COVID shot. And so it's been like a whirlwind. You know, obviously your listeners can't see this, but I'm, I'm like 60% filling boxes. And um, for, for any of your listeners who has OCD, like I do, mm. you know uh, that that living in a situation, or, or at least for some people, right? Because that's kind of my whole thing is that like, this isn't a stereotype. And, and if it affects you this way, like I feel you, it, is that when you're feeling off center in your life, then it, you just don't like, for me, at least my OCD kicks in and I start feeling anxious all the time. Mm. And so like, I even tweeted something today where, uh, you know, I was like, people say to me all the time, like, Oh man, like I definitely understand OCD. I wash my hands all the time. And it was like, I spent an hour today trying to find a bandaid that fell off my foot because if I didn't find it, I may literally die. I'm not a stereotype and no, you don't understand right. OCD, you know, like, so 
it, it's that's a little thing that uh, you know every every person who has OCD obviously theirs is different and for me that's one of my things is like band-aids and and chewing gum and just like that I'm more likely to really have a moment like that when I'm in a situation like this where I'm living you know out of boxes and uh, trying to run around and you know get a new ID and like all this stuff uh in literally the first week while I'm here but still do my job and still put my podcast out and have this awesome conversation with you. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just a lot to manage. And um, I was thinking about that today because I feel like that's a thing that I can be more open about now than I, than I could before. Um, Partly because of how hard I have worked over the last now going on six years to, to be this person, to lead this life, to, to do this work that I do. Um, and, and also because of the, the experience that I went through in my life, the trauma that I went through in my life that really got me to this point of through it. And, and I can't not just um, be who I am and, and be and embrace that, you know, full stop. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, for the listeners, like, uh, if, if first off, um, you know, I am a huge fan of yours, you know, that and, and, <laughs> ditto. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. But, but your listeners should know that, you know, um, I have this, this uh, storytelling event coming up, obviously in, in a couple of weeks. And seriously, this is the second time I've done this event and you were the first person I asked for this second event. So like, you know, it, it, the, the 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 admiration I have for the work you're doing is very high. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is is that I don't like I don't have time for people who aren't doing this in a way that I I guess respect would be the right word. Yeah. Um, you know, that there's there's a lot of people who get into this work, mental health, substance misuse, you know, drug policy, like those are my big three, and are doing it for various reasons. Um but those of us who do this work, as you and I had a meeting about last week or two weeks ago, yeah. you know, doing it, uh, doing it for good, doing it for, for the right reasons, right? You know, that stands out to the rest of us. We can all, our, our BS meter is pretty high if we're in right. this for the right reasons, you know? Yeah. So, so um, that is sort of the, the biggest thing for me. And, and as I just alluded to, it's because it, it took me a long time to get to that place, right? Um, so the very sort of quick version of my story is I am 11 years in recovery as of uh, last month. And uh, for me, by the way, what recovery looks like is not, you know, what the, the movies and TV show, right? Uh, I'm not I'm not sober. Um, I, for me, recovery means being in a better place, a healthier place after struggling with substance misuse and addiction. Mm. Um, for me, my biggest struggle is prescription pills. And I've been very lucky in my life to never struggle with uh, uh, misuse of alcohol. And so, you know, I still can have a drink safely, um, but, but I don't, I don't mess with pills and it, I, maybe I could, maybe I couldn't, I don't know, but I do know that my life is, is at a point where I don't want to take that chance unless I have to. Right. Yeah. So what got me to, to that struggle is not the story that everybody uh sort of thinks they know right i mean uh, and, and i always joke when i when i speak that 
uh, I didn't start uh, struggling with addiction after a friend passed me a joint underneath the bleachers during seventh grade gym, right? This isn't Nancy Reagan's just say no <laughs> story. Right. Um, my, my struggle was completely and totally uh, therapist driven. So I am 34 years old as we're recording this. And uh, like many people of my generation, uh, I was diagnosed with ADHD in uh, my preteen. And this was the late 90s when uh, the U.S. in just a decade went from roughly 400,000 young people being died or treated for this condition uh, all the way up to 2 million in a decade. I mean, unreal growth, right? And this was also the time when all the drug companies were, were spitting out pills for this. So I was put on medication as a preteen. And, um, you know, we know now, and I'm pretty sure it was known then, it just was ignored, yeah. that a lot of those medications have side effects. And, and not only that, when you're putting a young person whose brain is still very much developing, like rapidly developing, uh, and they're going through puberty, which we all remember was <laughs> just a joy. Um, and then they also have an issue of mental health because ADHD rarely it's one of those conditions that rarely uh, exhibits alone, right? It usually it, it comes with a lot of other things. And for me, that was depression, anxiety, OCD. Like I said, I still struggle with that. And so you add all of this together and it is a perfect storm of shit. And yeah. it's just hard on a young person. And unfortunately for me, my therapist didn't acknowledge this, this perfect storm that he had helped create. And instead he said, oh man, I know what this, you know, these symptoms that he's now showing, these are signs of a mood disorder. And by my mid-teens, that, that mood disorder had a new name. It was bipolar disorder. Now, for those of you who don't, don't have a DSM, or sorry, I should spell it out, the Diagnostic Manual of Psychology sitting next to them like I do, that is one of the more serious uh, issues of mental health. It's a very real, very serious condition. Um, that, that many people live with and, and face admirably and, and manage if they can. It, it, is, it is sort of, I've, I've made this analogy before, but it's akin to getting a diagnosis of cancer. I mean, it is a very real, serious condition. And unfortunately for me, uh, my family and I never got a second opinion on this. So when mm -hmm. my therapist said I had this, well, I, I had it, you know? I mean, that's just, that's just how it was. Yeah. So he started treating me for that in my late teens. And by my early 20s, I'm taking, oh, man, five or six different medications a day for ADHD for, for um, you know, this bipolar. And uh, on, on top of that, I had a back injury. So then I was, I was prescribed opioids. I mean, it was a whole thing. And I am very quickly struggling with misuse of all of these medications, um, you know, taking more than I'm supposed to be taking. Some of that was my choice. Um, you know, I... I know now obviously that the reason these drugs weren't helping was that I didn't need them right. at the time I just thought that I needed more and so I would take more to numb myself you know and I thought mm -hmm. oh this is what I'm supposed to feel like no I wasn't <laughs> you know I was just I was I was not feeling anything at that point so um by my by my uh, about 23 I'm completely full-blown you know struggling with addiction uh, I'm taking months a month's worth of, of my medications in two weeks less than that usually about 10 days wow. and my therapist knew this right because he had to renew all of these things 
they had to call him and be like, hey, your patient is coming back after 10 days for a month's worth of his medication. He was just like, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. You're, you're good. So <laughs> that was when, like, that was at my worst. I'm 23 years old. I've dropped out of school. Uh, I don't have a job. I'm seriously, like, my, my only ability is to lay on my couch uh, and, and, and try to avoid withdrawals. And I mean, I was in such bad shape at this point that if I woke up and didn't immediately take medication, I would go into withdrawal. So at 23 was when I, I just gave up. I was like, look, I'm looking around. My therapist is saying I have this very serious issue of mental health. Not only is it not getting better with medication, it's getting worse, very, very worse. Mm. And so when I was 23, I attempted suicide two, two days in a row. Mm. Uh, the first day I got stopped. The second day, I uh, succeeded in taking, I tried to overdose and I did. I, the second day I overdosed and um, both days I had called someone to tell them what I was doing. Like I said, they stopped me the first day, the second day I, I called them after I took the medication. I learned, I learned from the first attempt. Mm. And uh, next thing I know, because this is the United States, a uh, cop is at my door and I'm put in handcuffs and I'm taken out of my house uh, while going through the, the, the initial stages of overdo overdose, and I'm thrown against the side of his cop car. Heads, that's like my last memories, my head slamming into the side of his car, and then thrown roughly in the back seat. Uh, I don't remember anything after that. Like, I, have, I have like glimpses of consciousness the rest of the night. Uh, I spent the night handcuffed to a bed at a hospital. Um, and the next day, I, I, I actually, very much like a movie, right? I have this memory of consciousness sort of zooming back at me and I look around and I'm in the intake room of a lockdown facility, you know, no, no shoelaces, no belt, that kind of thing. And I seriously look at them, but I was like, where the fuck am I? <laughs> you know, where am I? And they're like, you don't remember coming here. I was like, I don't remember a thing, yeah. uh, but I was alive. Like, obviously I lived through it. So I spent three weeks in this lockdown facility uh, and then was released to my parents so they could send me to a long-term care facility, which is uh, what we would have called a mental institution 50 years ago, mm -hmm. and spent uh, three months there. And, and there, you know, I really got to know people with bipolar disorder, you know, and I really got to know people with issues of addiction. And I was like, man you know, that second group, like that looks like what I'm going through. Like I'd recognize their struggle. You know, once I got to know people with bipolar, I was like, I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't, you know, our, our experiences are not the same. Wow. So, so I, I went, I, I remember this day a little bit, but I, I've, I've gotten my records from this long-term care facility. I had to like get a lawyer to send them an, a letter saying, you know, he's allowed to have these because, you know, uh, I, I did that with a lot of places, Walgreens, CVS, um, mm. my therapist, all that kind of stuff. And it's amazing how little they'll do to comply with that. But, you know, like I got maybe 20% of all of my documents. But one of the things I did get was his notes from the day that I walked in and asked to get off of all my medication. And my therapist in-house, right, at this, at this mental institution. And he says in his notes that, uh, and I remember this distinctly, that he is not in favor of this. The only reason he'd be okay with me getting off these meds is if I agreed to start over again. And I wasn't trying to do that. I wanted to try living without all these medications. 
And like I said, I'm on five or six. They've added lithium at this point. And so I'm on like seven different medications a day now. And so I did the only thing I could, which was, you know, I was there against my will, but I wasn't court ordered. So I could check myself out. And I did. And I, uh, I went to live with my grandparents in Arizona, uh, which is where, you know, they're outside of, of Sedona in a town called Cornville. And, you know, my grandmother had no idea what to do with me, but she knew that I was really struggling, that things were not good. You know, she and I are very close, so we would talk a lot. And she knew that I was not doing well at this long-term care, uh, care facility. So she was like, fine, come here. We'll figure this thing out. So I spent uh, almost four months, about three, three and a half months, going through what's called step-down detox. And for your listeners who, who don't know, um, you know, everybody knows about cold turkey, right? You stop and, and you're, you're good. But when you have so much in your system, uh, withdrawal could literally kill you. Like right, it, it happens right. all the time. And so you have to go through what's called step down, which is where you take a little bit less every day or every couple of days or every week, depending on your, on your method. And unfortunately, I had so much in my system that it took me over three months, like three and a half months to do wow. this. And uh, it was, I mean, it's just, I, I've described it before as being painful in every sense of that word, because it's painful in mind, it's painful in, in spirit, it's painful in body, you just feel horrible for, for the entire time. And that took me, you know, three and a half months. So I finally go through all this. Some days I'm like not getting out of bed. Other days, you know, I'm barely living. And, um, you know, that, that was the spring of 2010. So like I said, here I am uh, 11 years later. But what the movies don't show you, because, you know, we've all seen those, those movies where the guy is like, I'm cured. And then he walks out of, out of the rehab, you know, whistling and, and he's, he's perfect. That is such great ABS. Mm. <laughs> it took me over five years to like rebuild myself and, and really get to the point especially because I'd struggled through most of my you know, late teenage, early 20s years. So right. my brain, my body, my maturity, all of that was like on different wavelengths and different ages. So I truly believe that I was like in my late 20s before my maturity uh, caught up with where I was supposed to be. And that was the time when I first told my story. And I was, I was finally feeling good. I, I was feeling like I could do this. And uh, I got a buddy in, in my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, who runs a storytelling organization uh, called Cincy Stories. He knew enough about my story to be like, I think you've got a good story to tell. And I honestly said to him, uh, that is never going to happen. <laughs> there is no chance in hell that I'm ever. Because I, I was still under this impression that, you know, the stigma is real, right? I mean. I was like, all right, I screwed up. Like, I, I made a mistake. I'm a degenerate. All the horrible things we say yeah. about people who struggle with their mental health and substance misuse. And so it took me, you know, him asking me three times. And finally, I went home and I was talking to my dad. And at the time, my dad was not, you know, up on this stuff, right? And, and, and he wasn't supportive because he thought I should be a leader in this environment. But he was supportive in the fact that he believed, and I, I fully agree with him, that fear is never a good reason not to do something. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, man, he's so right. And, and so I, I told my buddy, like, okay, ask me again. We had breakfast the next day. And he's <laughs> like, so you're going to do this? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So I told the story, and uh, that was election night of 2015. 
And at the time, I worked in nonprofits and, and uh, fundraising and politics, and, and those are very relationship-driven businesses. So, mm-hmm. again, that stigma at play, I got off the stage, and I walked to the back, and I was like, well, that's it. I've just thrown away my life. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm done. I, I'm going to have to find a, a nine-to-five career. Like, I'm, I'm, everything is over. Yeah. And it was so telling that the exact opposite happened. You would have thought I had just won a gold medal at the Olympics. I mean, people were... The next day, people were calling me. I mean, a week later, I'm getting someone calling and saying, I just heard about this. Like, this was such a big deal. Um, and I got invited to speak again at a, at a TED event not long after that. And the ball just kept rolling. And so uh, I started doing this work on the side then, you know, I, I, not by accident. Obviously, it wasn't an accident, but the work itself was. And in 2019, I was working with a uh, a, a a career coach who you now know by the name of Kristen Zavo, who is speaking also at Rock Bottom Storytellers too. And she was helping me because my career was kind of stalled in, in politics. I, I, I was liking it, but I wasn't fulfilled. And when she heard about what I did, when I was doing on the side, she said, Jay, why are you doing this on the side? Like, you're so passionate about this work. Why don't you just do this full time? And just like with Rock, I mean, with the my story event, the first time I said, "There's no way. Mm. How could I make this a career?" You know, and she was the first one to be like, "Well, but why are you thinking of this in conventional, success way?" Right? Yeah, you're making. I was making really good money before. Uh, everybody sort of knew my name. I was I was seriously having breakfast with the mayor, and she's like, "But." Are all those things like really how you want to measure success? And I was like, no, <laughs> that's not at all. I, you know, and so now I do this full time. And I, and when people ask me my why, it's honestly because we live in a world where most people, a extreme majority, do not get their first opportunity. They are, quite frankly, limited or screwed from the moment they are born in this world, the way that we treat other people. And here I am, this, this dude of privilege, this white man in this world, getting my second chance. And if I don't use this for good, <laughs> I, what a waste. You know, what a waste if I don't dedicate this time to, to making a difference and doing something. And so that's what I do now is, is, I don't measure my success by money. And that's a, it's a good thing because I would not be succeeding if that was the way I'm measuring <laughs> this, you know, but, but I'm lucky that I come from means. My wife has a very good job and I measure my success by the ways I can, I can have influence by the, the ways that I can use my privilege, use my platform. And, and that's why I do the podcast. Choose your struggle podcast is, is a, is a twice a week event. Um, and, and it, it's had, you know, so many incredible people on it already. Um, and, and now I have rock bottom storytellers and a day in the life, which are two storytelling events. Uh, obviously, you know, well about those. And I just, it, it, I'm, I'm very passionate about helping end the stigma around, you know, issues of mental health and substance misuse and drug use. And, and then once you can help someone recognize their stigma. Like they have to recognize the wall that is between them and, and, and sort of honest truth about these issues. And once they do, then you can start to educate, you know, we, we get stuck in this trap all the time where 
it's like we try to educate someone and they're just like, I don't even believe you to start because so much of these, uh, so much around these issues has been, I mean, quite honestly, nothing but lies for the longest time, Absolutely. especially when it comes to drug use and addiction. You know, <laughs> there it is. There's one truth for every 10 lies when it comes to that work. And, yeah. and the way that we talk about people is it's none of it is true. And yet we can't educate until we help people understand. All right, you need to understand that these are lies. And let me tell you why. And when it comes to drug use and addiction, it is one. It, well, it's just one thing overall. And it's bigotry. You know, the earliest drug laws in this country were were aimed at Asian women. It's just it. It's not even hidden. I got to give our, our racist forebears a little bit of, of, of props for this one. They put it in the bill. Yeah. <laughs> they were just, it was just right there. It says it in the bill. And yet people want to be like, no, 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 no. That's not what they mean. It's in there. It's in the words. It says it right there. And it was because they were scared of, you know, I, I mean, opium dens are, are the original drug laws in this country. Um, I was talking to someone about this the other day. All of our drug laws date back to this one, and it was all it was an anti Asian law that they chose opium, right? And then China got pissed off as they would because they were like, Wait a minute, why are you penalizing all of our, you know, the people coming to your country? And they're like, No, 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 <laughs> the US isn't good at saying we're sorry, we've never done that, it's yeah. never happened. And so instead of saying, Yeah, you're right, we screwed up, they doubled down and they're like, Nope, opium is this huge, all the things we say now. If you study this history, it's all been said before about different drugs. All of our policy dates back to this one mistake where we decided to be racist instead of truthful. It wasn't a mistake. That's, that's letting people off the hook. This decision to be racist instead of truthful. So when you follow these threads, and there's so much excellent studies on this and, and, and books that have been written and, and podcasts and everything. But it helps people see, oh, like this has been going on for so long and the same tropes have been repeated over and over again. And the same is true about mental health. So once you educate people, then you can start breaking these things down and, and saying, all right, now that we're moving past the stigma and the barriers, let's have honest conversations about this. And so that's what I do on my podcast. That's what I do on my, my shows. And, you know, it's why I get out of bed every morning. I, I was so... Um, happy that you brought this up because I, I noticed it in the way that you were speaking too of just like how language is so powerful and language in itself is just, I mean, so much of our stigma is just rooted in how we talk about each other. Yeah. So I have a policy when I'm, when I'm talking to people, I've been on the interviews where it's like me and a couple other people. And if you are in this community, if you are in recovery, whatever, you're, you're currently a drug user, you currently are struggling, whatever the case is, you can honestly say whatever the hell you want. You can, I know people who are, you know, call themselves a junkie as like, a, you know, we're taking back that, that word. Yeah, right, reclamation, Look, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little BS, but at the same time, if that's what you want to do, do it. Like, that's, that's awesome. That being said, know what you are doing, right? So perfect example. I was working with someone, I was on an interview with someone not long ago, mm -hmm. and they know one of my biggest pet peeves, one, probably the biggest one, is when someone says the word clean. I yeah. hate it. I just hate it. And I hate it because that was a word that was given to us 
when we got into recovery blatantly because before we were in recovery we were dirty right i mean it just flat out was a horrible thing to talk about drug users and people struggling with substance misuse or addiction right so i i she knew this and so she said i like to use clean because i do believe i was dirty before and i was like oh girl <laughs> oh hold on like look if you feel that like you can recognize how much you struggled. You can recognize, and in some of her things, she had decided that there were choices, and that that's her opinion. That's fine. But to, to take on that word and knowing its background and be like, yes, that describes me, I just, I feel, I, I felt bad. And I also was like, at this point, you're doing it in a way that I don't believe is healthy. Yeah. So, for me, though, the biggest eye opener, honestly, I, I got in. I mean, I've been constantly working with people. When I hear someone say something that even I don't know, my initial reaction, I did this on LinkedIn two days ago, was to say, hey, I heard you speak. You use this term that I've never heard before. And you then followed up with saying we're replacing this other term because of stigma. I didn't even know that term had stigma. Can you educate me? You know, I looked on Google. I couldn't find this anywhere. She said, this is very new. This is a thing we're trying to do. So that is, a, I'm constantly looking for those opportunities to learn. And, yeah. and it, it takes constant. You know, I was hired by a marketing firm uh, six months ago to do that work for them because they were working with a, a recovery center and they wanted someone to prepare a report for them on the current state of language in the substance misuse and, and recovery community. Mm. And I... I mean, I, my report was like 15 pages long because I just got into it. Like, I love this stuff. Right. Yeah. But I finished by saying, in conclusion, this will be out of date within six months. <laughs> yeah. Constantly changing. I, I, I forecasted where we're heading as much as I could, but was like, come back to me in six months and I'll, I'll, I'll update it, you know, because it is constantly changing. But for me, the eye opening one was I was on an interview probably three months ago mm. and like I said I've been doing this now for years but somebody I'd never been asked this question before somebody said but I don't understand why did you feel that way about yourself for the first couple of years in recovery why were you so afraid to tell people mm. and it knocked me on my because no one had ever asked me that before and I had never thought about it before and I finally said well, no one like told me, no one said to me, oh, you know, you've made this horrible mistake. You're such a screw up. It's just the way we talk about people. It's just the way we show people in movies, in yeah. um, TV and music, the way it's all around us. And if you don't internalize that, you are a stronger person than I am. So that is, was my wake up moment to be like, here I am, a guy, and, and, and by the way, I mentioned this the first time I ever spoke, even though I was five years in recovery, when I pictured the word, quote unquote, addict, I didn't picture me. Mm. I lived this, and I still didn't picture myself. And that is how strong these, the, this, these images are. That is how strong this work has been done to stigmatize those who struggle, right? When I picture the word addict, I picture the 0.1% living on the street, you know, uh, struggling, you know, begging, all this kind of stuff. And that's because that's what news shows us. That's what right. movies show us. And the fact is, that is such a small percentage. Not only that, 
we've been taught to believe that almost anyone who uses drugs will struggle with addiction. That is, was part of just say no. Right. In fact, it is under 8%. And a lot of those will be struggling with misuse, not full-blown addiction. Mm-hmm. So over 90% of people who do this will be okay. And, and what's so ridiculous is, of course, we know that when it comes to alcohol, because nobody would ever say that every person who drinks is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And yet, every person who uses drugs is a dirty addict, according to our, our news, our media, all of this. And so, it's, again, it's these sorts of things where we, we have to change the language. We have to change the way we talk about it before we can ch- even begin to change the education. You had posted this on your Instagram. I think we had actually both posted it on the same day in my head. I was like, ah, I knew I liked Jay, <laughs> but it was like a, um, it's not a war on drugs. It's a war on people of color. Even when you tell stories, even when you use your platform, like you're always finding opportunities to, to, to educate, to really share the truth and to bust down a lot of these myths that people, you know, no fault to their own. That's the messages that were fed all of our lives. So I see you doing it just with your platform, with your storytelling, with your podcast. Are you in, are you still involved in like advocacy and policy efforts along, along the way as well? Oh, a hundred percent. So I think you used the most incredible word there, which is myths. And, and that is because myths are created, right? When we think of the, the great myths throughout history, of course, we think of the Greek you know, myth the, of the gods and all that. Those are created to explain something we cannot explain. Mm-hmm. And that has been done to the war on uh, to, to, to drugs, to, to the war on people. It, 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 these things have been created out of full cloth. None of it is true. And yet, People have bought into it because to them, it's easier for their minds to to understand. And I say this a lot when I speak, our brains like stories. That's how our brains relate to the world around us. We can relate better to someone's experience if we have gone through something similar. And so to be told all along that, okay, here is the story about how someone uses, uh, usually it's the one we all know, they use the marijuana, and now they're a heroin addict. <laughs> there is no truth to that once, not once, <laughs> that, that that ever happened. Now, is it possible that somebody first used, you know, marijuana and then decided, of course it's possible, but using something like cannabis safely does not make you a heroin addict. So we, we just allowed this myth to be created. So I don't fault people who believe this, right? I right. did until not long yeah, ago. Same here. I lived this, you know? So I, the, the people who know that this is BS, I just love them that much more because it's like, all right, you've done enough education that you've, it, it, it's beyond just living it, right? You have to live it and then have your eyes open and be like, oh, oh, this is all BS, right? So I do believe that policy can play a major role in this. And that's why, you know, my, my, my podcast, one of the things it covers is drug uh, use and policy Mm -hmm. because we do need changes, massive changes. But I, (laughs) I, like I said, I used to work in politics and I finally have come to this realization that if you look back at history, the last time uh, that a positive was really changed first on a, a sort of national level and, and, and politics kind of was the, was the forebearer. We're talking about like the new deal, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, back to, back to, to FDR, 
that's not the way our society really works anymore. Politics is now very much a responsive thing. The people right. have to pull it along. Absolutely. And it's it's because it, the system, I mean, flat out the system is broken in so many ways, right? We're talking, you and I are talking tonight after another young black man was shot for nothing. And yet we still have people who are like, no, 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 the police are doing a great job that he should have, he shouldn't have resisted. BS, right? I mean, yeah. come on. If you, what is it going to take for these people to wake up? So I do believe po- that policy and politics play a role. But at the same time, I don't think that there are enough organizations dedicated to that that are, I guess, having changes. But the ones who are really doing the work that I admire are the ones that have their feet on the ground, are mm-hmm. talking to people, yeah. are are making a change outside of the ballot box. Because as we are seeing, <laughs> the ballot box isn't saving us anymore. This isn't 1964. You know, this is a different age of politics where we need to be doing this work in our streets ourselves. And at some point, the politicians will have to come join. There's this term that we learned in public health, and it's basically like this reciprocal relationship between your environment and you. And it's basically exactly what you said of just like, yes, policy is only so much, but it kind of reflects and reinforces what the people want. And then in turn, people will reflect and reinforce what the policy changes are. So it's like, you kind you kind of need both. <laughs> and, and, and like you said, like, especially right now, people really are the drivers of change. And of course, yes, voting is important. Everyone go vote, but have these conversations on a one-to-one level. Um, I love your, your strategy of, you know, ending the stigma through conversation, through destigmatizing language, busting down the myths and like unlearning things that we've been taught, even if it makes you so effing uncomfortable, because that means that you're probably taking a step in the right direction. If you're going into a conversation and you're comfortable at the end of it, I promise you, you probably haven't challenged your inner workings as much as you need to. (laughs) I could not agree more. And it's why I finally, after, you know, sort of trial by fire or learning the hard way, I added whenever I speak now, whether it's I, I, I have 10 minute speeches, I have 15, I have 30, I'm an hour, does not matter. I spend 30 seconds telling people the same thing towards the beginning of every single speech. And that is, if I make you uncomfortable today, if something I say upsets you, I need you to do a little bit of mindfulness with me before you come talk to me. Mm. If what I said upsets you because you think I'm wrong, I would love to have that conversation. Please come talk to me. Don't go away. Oh, that guy's an idiot. Like, I want to hear from you. If I, if you get upset because what I said made you feel uncomfortable, like, ooh, like that was tough to swallow. That is a very different conversation that I still want to have with you. But if you mistake the two, you're just going to be really angry. And I've had people in my face. I had a, I had a, a grandmother once told me was just yelling at me afterwards. And it basically boiled down to I, she didn't like how I made her feel about how maybe she had played a role in screwing up her grandson who was on ADHD medication. Now Mm. we got to that point, but we didn't start there. We started there with her very angry at me and I did not know where she was coming from. She was just mad. And we finally got to this and then a real conversation could begin. But if she had just taken a second to be like, why am I so upset after hearing this? You know, we could have had a a much 
different experience together. And again, like I said, I, I just, I, I've gotten to the point now where I just submit that at the beginning to be like, this has happened enough times. I need to give you this warning because I'm going to upset you. Well, Jay, this has been amazing. I mean, I, I just like you were saying of admiration, I have, if not the same level, if not more admiration for you. I love the work you do. I love um, your storytelling, which resonates with people, whether they have that exact same experience or not, you find a way to relate to people. So thank you so much for being on the show. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I, I say this a lot. Actually, that's not true. I say this only on the good, uh, the good shows, which is I do this a lot, right? Last last year, 2020, I was on, I was interviewed probably 80 different times, right? And there's a difference between talking to people like you who get it and just talking to people. Mm-hmm. I've been on shows where honestly, I've walked out of the, the room after the interview. My wife was like, how'd that go? I'm like, eh. and she knows that that means I could have done this thing in my sleep, right? <laughs> I was yeah. telling my story. It was answering the same questions. And then I come out of them like this interview and she's like, how'd it go? And I'm like, I need to go for a walk. I need to go for a jog. I need to do something because I'm hyped. Yeah. And that's how she knows it was a good interview. Oh, you know good. I mean? Yeah. So, so th- I, I appreciate the conversations more when it's with a person who just gets it. So thank you. Yeah. But the last message I want to leave for your listeners, because this is so important. I say this every time I speak, it is it, it, seriously, it is the most important thing in my mind. And that is if you are struggling, reach out. Mm-hmm. I made the mistake of not doing that. And, you know, there's a better chance than not that I'm not still here. And yet I am right. I attempted suicide twice in two days and I overdosed. And yet somehow I'm still talking to you. The odds aren't, that's not supposed to happen. And, and, and most people aren't going to be sitting here still talking. So if you're struggling, reach out. There is somebody in your life who will listen. If not, find me. I, I've, I've honestly had people reach out over TikTok and they were like, hey, you're the guy who's a struggle. I was like, yeah, what's up? And like, we ended up having this conversation. Don't reach out over TikTok. I'm, I'm never on there. I'm going to miss your message. But find <laughs> me on social media. Find me on my website, which is jshiffman.com. And I say this, that those of us who work in this industry, we have a saying, which is we'd rather spend two hours talking to you today than two hours at your funeral tomorrow. So seriously, reach out. And, and if you have a friend who's struggling, do it. Don't be afraid. Oh, but what if I upset him? You don't want to live with that guilt. I am a person who has stopped a person from suicide. And here I am over 10 years later, still going, oh my God, I can't, what if I hadn't? You know what I mean? Like it sits with you and I did it. I, I, I stopped it. I could not live with myself if that person, if I had, if I had missed the signs, if I hadn't reached out, right? So please just reach out, whatever side you're on, reach out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I will link your website and your social media and everything in the show notes. Everyone go give Jay a follow and just show him all the love because he's a wonderful person. Thank you, Jay. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Subscribe wherever podcasts are found. And of course, rate, review, and share with a friend. If you want to learn more about me, you can check out my website, jannyrad.com. That's J-A-N-I-R-A-D.com. Check out my Instagram at jannyrad.me. Be Fearless Youth Foundation is a memory of Kimberly Neal, who is Corey Lynn Bailey's sister and lost her life to suicide. Visit their website, befearlessyou.org. Love the podcast music? That's BK Williams. You can follow him on Instagram, Brian K underscore Williams 28. Thanks for listening.